You're listening to an IOE podcast. Powered by UCL Minds. Hello and welcome to this recording, which we're presenting as part of IOE's 120th anniversary in 2022. As part of those celebrations, each of IOE's academic departments is sharing its current areas of work. I'm Professor Jeff Besmer, head of IOE's Department of Culture, Communication and Media. And I'm pleased to be joined today by colleagues from across the department to discuss some of the key themes of our work and how they have informed policy and practice in education, health, in the cultural sector and society more generally. Our work is very strongly connected to the IOE's focus on learning and teaching and culture and society. What our department brings to the IOE is world-leading expertise in the areas of language and communication, culture and education, and media and technology. We are very much a multidisciplinary department. Our work is grounded in the social sciences as well as the arts and humanities, and also draws on AI and human-computer interaction. Over the years, we have made significant contributions to knowledge, policy and practice. For example, we have been at the forefront of research in language learning, visual communication and educational technology. We have trained generations of teachers of English, drama, foreign languages, music and art and design. And we have developed a range of digital tools for teaching and learning across the globe. We're now going to explore these contributions in more detail with six of our professors. They are Caroline Daly, Professor of Teacher Education, Evangelos Himonidas, Professor of Technology, Education and Music, Kashka Poajska Pomsta, Professor of Artificial Intelligence and Education, John Potter, Professor of Media and Education, Andrea Reves, Professor of Second Language Acquisition, and I will also be joining the conversation as Professor of Communication. Welcome all, I'm delighted that you are with us today. So we're going to go around the table and talk with each of you about your research, what you and your colleagues are trying to find out, who you work with, what and who your research is for, and where you see the research going next. So I'm going to start with you, Andrea. Hello. Hi, Jeff. Would you like to tell us something about your research? What is it about uh, and what are you trying to find out? As you've just mentioned, I'm a second language acquisition researcher. I study how people use and learn foreign and second languages. And within this larger field, I'm ultimately interested in understanding the cognitive processes in which second language learners engage. The primary goal of this line of research is to inform second language teaching and assessment practices. Some of my work is more basic in research, focusing on the processes in which second language learners engage when they write or speak in a second language. In terms of writing, we use a combination of methods to examine writing processes. I thought I would give you an example just to get an idea what this involves. We track participants' keystrokes and mouse movements while they write through keystroke logging software. We also use eye tracking equipment to track their eye movements while they write because when it comes to writing, reading and viewing is an important writing process. And when they finish writing, we also ask them uh, to share what they were thinking um, while they uh, uh, were composing. We feel that in this way, combining these various research methods, we can arrive at a more valid um, and fuller picture of the writing process. When it comes to speaking, I have recently begun to collaborate with neuroscientists to tap the speaking process. 
We asked participants to carry out speaking activities in an fMRI machine. Uh, now this is possible to engage in a spontaneous speech production. And then we triangulate this data with linguistic analysis. Let me also give you a few examples of my research, which has more direct implications uh, for language teaching practice and assessment. Through my work with PhD students, we look into the role of captions, subtitles, when they engage with videos. For example, we uh, investigate whether highlighting features in the input would help second language learning. One of my students looks into multimodal feedback. Is it better to give feedback just through writing or speaking or to do that uh, simultaneously? A common thread across all of these research projects is a focus on second language tasks. I contextualize my research in task-based language teaching, which means that we adopt task communicative activities as a basic unit for curriculum development, designing classroom activities, and also for assessment uh, practices. So when I look at speaking or writing, uh, usually I do investigate uh, task-based uh, communication and speech or writing. Okay, so it sounds like you're trying to measure language use at a very detailed level, is that right? Yes, yes, and using psycholinguistic methods and uh, more recently, again, as I mentioned, working with neuroscientists as well. Are there any specific challenges that you encounter when you're trying to measure what people do when they speak or write in that way? There are many challenges and that's why it's important to, to triangulate various methods because if you just use one of them, let's say trying to look at how they type or what they see, you will only capture part of that process and it's a complex phenomenon. So bringing together these various resources is helpful because then we can overcome limitations of each of these uh, methods to some extent, of course. Okay, and so your broader area of interest is second language acquisition. How does that relate to the work that your colleagues do in your centre? Uh, in our centre, in the Centre for Applied Linguistics, there is a group uh, who also look into second language acquisition. We have a thriving second language acquisition community. Colleagues work on speech production, individual differences, vocabulary acquisition, reading bilingual language acquisition. Another cluster within the centre deals with linguistic and social inequalities and they try to identify solutions to tackle these issues. And the ultimate goal of their research is to help transform societies at large. Maybe it's helpful if I give some specific research interest areas that my colleagues uh, engage in, second language assessment, language teaching materials. Colleagues also work on educational sociolinguistics discourse, critical discourse analysis, political economy, global Englishes. Others research the role of gender and sexuality, and I have some colleagues working on workplace communication and health-related aspects of life. Probably it's already clear that we are a diverse group of people. We cover several areas. Maybe it's also important to emphasize that we have a, a broad range of research methods that we use, ranging from qualitative ethnographic methods through corpus linguistic discourse to psycholinguistic neuroscience research that I've described in, in relation to my own research. Much of our work is interdisciplinary, bringing together applied linguistics with fields such as sociology, health sciences, neuroscience, education, technology, psychology, and of course, the larger field of uh, education. Okay. And you already highlighted the value of your own work for um, education. Can you elaborate a bit more on 
what the sort of wider benefits are of your research, how it can be applied in practice? Well, to some extent, as, as you, you, you mentioned, I already uh, outlined that I work with language teachers to some extent and, and assessment specialists, so it has wider implication, implications for these fields. Um, I've been involved in projects with uh, teachers, of course, language learners, and also language testing organizations, where, among other things, we hope to inform the language testing practices, organizations like uh, English testing uh, service, um, Cambridge Language Assessment, Trinity College London, um, British IELTS, uh, British IELTS, British Council. Mm -hmm. So would you say that one of the outcomes of your work is that it makes uh, language testing more accurate, more precise? When it comes to testing, when you'd like to test um, second language knowledge, first you need to understand uh, what that knowledge entails and what processes language learners are engaged in when they, in this case, perform a test. So this is more basic type of research, but I do believe it's important for language testers to understand these processes so they can design um, effective and, and suitable assessments. Mm -hmm. Looking into the future, what, what are you planning to do next? Well, as it might have become uh, obvious, uh, uh, based on my description of my, my research interest, I'm really passionate about research methodology. So I'd like to continue um, with interdisciplinary approaches uh, to my research. I think it's particularly exciting uh, to look into uh, collaborations between second language acquisition researchers and neuroscientists. Um, it's becoming increasingly possible to look at these processes, so this is one area I'd, I'd like to continue. And of course, when it comes to language teaching, um, again, the primary goal of my research to inform language teachers and learners and assessment specialists, so collaboration with these stakeholders is, is also important. So I'd like to make sure that the insights from my research actually reach these uh, practitioners, because ultimately the research is intended for them. Sounds fascinating. Do any of my colleagues have any questions for Andrea? I was intrigued by your, when you came back to saying about mixed methods. So what kinds of qualitative methods do you use? Um, I would probably, I should maybe uh, highlight that most of my research is more quantitative yeah. in, re uh, in nature. But when we ask or interview uh, mm -hmm. our participants what they were thinking sure. uh, while they engaged um, in some type of writing or reading or any type of uh, second language activity, that's more qualitative yeah. in nature, the data we get. So then we engage in qualitative analysis, but then we quantify that data. So <laughs> it's not the ethnographic qualitative type of research that yeah. I, I do. No, that's fascinating. Thanks. Thank it you. Is, it is a fascinating uh, thing. And I mean, there have been many discussions in the past about music being a language as well, so and, and debates about it. But for me, it's it's also personally uh, fascinating because uh, what is perceived as my mother tongue is actually my second language. I, I grew up uh, learning uh, speaking German as my first language, and now my second language, Greek, is my mother tongue, and German has been completely relinquished. So I've always been fascinated about. Uh, about what happens in the brain and about the actual structural changes happening. And we've seen those uh, with uh, studies in music as well, uh, about structural changes with musical training and also linguistic training. So uh, I would very much love to, to actually have further discussions with, uh, with you and to see how future synergies can be formed. 
Sounds exciting. Some of my colleagues actually look into this area. They looked into bilingual language acquisition, uh, looking at exactly those type of structural changes, what it means to grow up monolingually or bilingually. So uh, that research can probably answer some of your questions already, but there's a lot more. Well, uh, I, I did into. volunteer my daughter in one of your studies in your center as, uh, as a free passport holder that actually doesn't speak Greek, but speaks uh, only English, but is the daughter of an American and a Greek person. So uh, we did uh, take her to Gosh and uh, volunteer her for the Thank brain scan. Thank you very scanner. much for volunteering. We need people <laughs> it was, like it you. Was, it was very interesting, yes. And she loved it, actually. And she got a, an actual certificate so that had a, uh, a picture of her brain as well. So she, she values that. So I'm going to hand over uh, my role as facilitator momentarily to Kashka so that we can have a conversation about my research. Hello, Jeff. Uh, hello, everyone. Um, I will uh, start by asking you about your research and your research interests, and perhaps you can also give us a few examples of, of your research, Jeff. Absolutely, thank you. Yes, I am a professor of communication, but I have, in fact, in the past 10 years or so, focused on teamwork. So it's a very kind of broad conception of communication and more specifically teamwork in uh, clinical settings, in hospitals. So for example, uh, teams that work in an operating room uh, or that come together to, to resuscitate a patient in the intensive care unit. Uh, those kinds of situations where people come together to engage in cooperative action. And what I'm really interested in is to find out how they actually go about doing that. It looks so simple, uh, the idea of, of working on the task together. But in actual practice, it is rather complex, especially in those clinical settings where you've got lots of different people uh, operating in particular roles and actually having to rely on each other to, uh, to engage in, in, in joint action. Uh, even just simple things like one person having to hold something up so that the other person can, can, can cut it or, or manipulate it in, in, in some way. Uh, and I use video recordings to explore that, so I spent hours um, going through those recordings and uh, really trying to work out what happens on a kind of second by second basis. How do they get from one, from one action to another? I guess this is, this is also illustrating how um, broad a definition of education we adopt in, within the department and more broadly within, within the IOE. So we are not just talking about classroom learning or just young uh, learners, uh, but we're talking about much broader settings uh, where people actually can engage um, in um, engage their expertise in professional settings. Yeah. Um, so could you could you give us um, maybe an idea of how your work uh, relates, uh, you know, to, to work across the department? What kind of um, uh, partners do you have within? Uh, the department yeah and then maybe more broadly as well yeah absolutely and uh, you're, you're you're right um, my work is not exclusively focused on learning and teaching although it, it, it is part of it so I'm also interested to see what happens when you put let's say newcomers or learners into that group that comes together to to work on things how does that change the way they work and how do they support the learner how do they induct the learners into that environment? Uh, what kinds of 
remedial action do they engage in to, uh, to, to, to make things work, um, even though you have to uh, also support people at the same time. Uh, but uh, there are lots of people, in fact, uh, in the IOE that work around what we call multimodal communication. So this is the idea that uh, people use a range of different means of, of communication in, in their day-to-day -day, uh, life, whether it is um, uh, a gesture or, or, or speech or writing or gaze or any kind of visual communication like image um, all these different means of expression uh, tend to be used in in, in conjunction and uh, the, the the area of multimodal communication emerged almost 20 years ago now which was around the time that i joined the ioe in fact in fact it was the reason why i came to the ioe because the ioe was was um pioneering that, um, that, that space. Uh, people like Gunter Kress and, and Kerry Jewett uh, and, and, and some other colleagues were working on um, a, a project called uh, English in, in, in the Classroom. And uh, they were looking at the ways in which uh, teachers and students uh, communicate with each other through all those different means of communication, not just through talk. And at the time, that was a very revolutionary idea uh, and I was very excited to to join their team. And it has since expanded and other people have joined the team. They have started looking at other sites like museums or um, uh, uh, they've started looking at digital literacies or film semiotics or, or touch, for example, or multimodal learning analytics. It kind of expanded into a, a range of different areas. It's really fascinating. Um, it really brings to the fore this um, notion that we we don't learn in one particular way or don't engage with the environment in one particular way. We recruit all of these different uh, forms of of um, interaction into into our um, uh, existence, I guess, and in, into our into our into our learning and and into our um, understanding of the of the environment and one of the uh, m more fascinating to me at least uh, areas is this transition um, from novice to expert and how novices find themselves in these uh, uh, quite um, um, contrived environments where they really have to um, enact learn what an expert or what expertise is, what is required of them, and and to act in the heat of the moment. So this is this is really um, again emphasizing the, the the variety of the different contexts in which in which we learn and and enact our um, our expertise. Indeed, indeed. If you go into these spaces that uh, you haven't um, where you haven't been working yourself, you need to work very closely with the people who do. You can't just observe them doing what they do, uh, which is a big part of my work, but you do also need to talk to them and you need to ideally also work with them on your research. So you can look at the, the video recordings in my case, but data more generally together to make sense of those data. So I do work with, with health professionals, I've worked with surgeons, with 
with nurses. I've got uh, PhD students that have a background in physiotherapy um, and so on. So that is absolutely essential, that, that close collaboration. And it should really go beyond um, uh, you know, the, the, the interview, which is what researchers uh, used to do, uh, having a conversation. Um, and, and that's it. But you, you, you need to work much more closely together. Could you tell us a bit about why do you think this research is, is important? Who will this research or who does this research benefit? That's a really good question. And of course, I get asked that question uh, all the time, especially from the health professionals themselves. And uh, what I always say is that what we are trying to do, what I'm trying to do is uh, get a better sense of of, of the lived experiences of those health professionals, of of the kind of messy day-to-day worlds um, that uh, that they have to operate in, um, and to identify the sorts of challenges that they encounter, uh, but also the the workarounds that they design to um, to work in spite of all those challenges, uh, or perhaps even to address those those challenges uh, uh, bang on. Um, so it's it, it's an attempt to come up with a detailed representation of what their day-to-day life uh, uh, looks like and what their their work entails in, in in practice. And the next step is to then make explicit what the underlying principles or or patterns are of, of those behaviors that, that we've encountered and to discuss those to subject those, uh, those explications to 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 some form of joint analysis, critical analysis, uh, and to start a conversation about how things may work better if you redesign aspects of the environment or um, aspects of the of the procedures that they that they follow. So again, that's really a matter of of collaborating very closely with uh, with the health professionals directly. Wonderful. I, I wanted to open up the um, conversation to other colleagues. Do you have any questions? Caroline. Uh, thanks, Jeff. Um, I'm, I'm aware that there's been interest from uh, medical profession, uh, professional learning in the kinds of research that, that you do. Um, have you got anything you could tell us about the networks that, that you've got with, for example, people in medical education, primary healthcare education, and what they've been able to gain from the research that you do? Yeah, well, I can give an example of a um, PhD project that um, the medical school of UCL was also involved in. Um, it was a, 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 a co-supervision. And uh, it was, in fact, a surgeon who was interested in work-based assessments, which is something that health professionals are all too familiar with. They have to complete, I don't know how many forms every year uh, to document learning um, that involved uh, supervision um, or that they did entirely independently. Uh, There are different types of learning that they need to to document and uh, the surgeon uh, Arpan Tahim uh, was very interested in finding out not just what that 
what the outcome of that process is, which is a whole load of forms, as we know, um, but the process behind it. So how do people actually go about completing those forms? What makes them decide to document one particular instance of learning rather than another? Um, what, who actually completes the form to begin with? Is it the learner or is it the supervisor? Turns out that often the learner completes parts of the form on behalf of the supervisor who then just needs to sign it off. But that doesn't mean that they can complete the form in whatever way they want. Uh, there are all sorts of considerations that come into play there, which have to do with, with the, the, the professional identity of, of the learner, um, the impression that they want to give towards their supervisor, but also towards the people that eventually need to look at those forms to decide whether they can stay on as a learner or whether they need to repeat or, 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 or whatever. So that's, that's one example of, um, uh, of, of the ways in which my research can contribute to understanding um, medical education. If I may, Jeff, I, uh, I find it fascinating because I, I, I see a lot of value in people in education and educational research being involved in, in opening these new doors, which is a, a new thing. Uh, and I think that uh, society has started understanding how important it is to involve educators and educational researchers in that. Uh, in uh, adopting multimodal approaches to, to trying to understand how things work, which, if you think about it, is by default what teachers are supposed to be doing in order to be effective teachers. Uh, and one of the fascinating things that I've discovered, for example, as one of the founding uh, editors of a new branch in performance science in Frontiers uh, under psychology, is that... Uh, in when using different multimodal lenses, for example, surgery or other parts of medical practice are seen as performative practices. And you have now new scholarship and new research kind of being submitted under performance science. And that's why, for example, we have very interesting initiatives like the synergy between the Royal College of Music and the Imperial College uh, Medical School uh, with a massively funded uh, project in order to explore these things. So it's, it's fascinating work and it would, be, it would be very nice again to explore possible synergies because again music is very strongly interwoven with the therapeutic uh, sector. Indeed, thank you. Yeah. I think Andrea wanted also to ask a question. Thanks. This is indeed really exciting research and I, I was interested in the multimodal aspect of, of your work and I was wondering what a multimodal analysis actually entails in, in your case. How would you go about this analysis? Well, there's different ways of doing it, but I suppose the, 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 the easiest way to, to think about it is rather than trying to just transcribe what people say, which is what um, researchers in in our area have have done for a long time you're also trying to um, transcribe in one way or another uh, the gestures that they use the actions that they perform whilst they are talking or when they're not talking at all but simply getting on with the task uh, at hand uh, and that's of course a, a, a real challenge because at best you can you can describe it or you need to find an alternative kind of code to represent uh, different types of actions. Uh, but that's that's effectively how it works. You go through a video and you've got different 
different uh, streams or different tiers, if you like, for each mode of communication. Thank you. So I will hand over back to Jeff now uh, to continue the conversation. Thank you very much, uh, Kaska. Um, could you tell us something about your research, Kaska? Sure. Um, so I'm Professor of Artificial Intelligence in Education and um, uh, I am interested in understanding at a general level what drives people's learning, action and decision making. Um, so this is a very broad area, um, but fundamentally uh, this is an area which is of relevance to then uh, being able to uh, not only understand um, what makes us human and, and what makes us interact with, with the environment, but also it's important to helping us um, shape the behaviors and actions and decision uh, making processes. And in order to uh, conduct my research, I rely very much on artificial intelligence techniques and models and theories. Um, and the advantage of actually using uh, technology and especially technology that is inspired by uh, human uh, cognition and human behavior is that we can create uh, very tangible and testable models of our theories. Uh, so that allows us to manipulate these models. It, it allows us to manipulate different variables and to gain a much more precise understanding of the phenomena that we are looking at. But by the same token, by creating these models, we are also able to then invest in tools which we can use directly to um, help people learn to enhance their uh, communication or to enhance their decision making in diverse contexts. And there are plenty of examples uh, from my own research uh, and also from research across the, the IOE, but especially uh, within the lab where I am based, the, the UCL Knowledge Lab, where um, we investigate, we, we invest in both uh, these aspects of um, uh, uh, research, so creating models, uh, contributing to, to our theories of human behavior and learning, and also developing tools for uh, helping people learn and, and communicate and, um, and so on. And these examples typically involve um, creating specialist models uh, of particular aspects of behavior. Um, so, for example, um, uh, models of um, how people solve problems in, for example, in, in domains such as mathematics, um, models of how uh, people um, are motivated to actually engage in linguistic communication. So uh, the specific examples, there are multiple uh, specific examples of, of these kinds of um, projects, research projects, which, for example, focus on uh, helping young children on the um, uh, autistic spectrum to 
engage in social communication and linguistic communication as well. Um, and there are um, also other forms of models, for example, models of, of uh, how teachers actually employ uh, uh, su uh, support strategies to help students in the moment uh, to progress through uh, their uh, learning experiences in multiple different domains. So you, you talk about models. Could you explain to, to the lay public, uh, myself included, what, what, what does a model mean in this case and, and how, do you, how do you build it? Well, it's a very complicated process which involves um, engaging uh, many different methodologies. Andrea was talking about quantitative uh, methods and qualitative methods. You were talking also about uh, methods of observation and coding the data, which is a very painstaking uh, process. We do exactly the same uh, in the context of AI in education. Uh, we have um, we collect data about how people um, behave. So obviously, this is the, the models are restricted to uh, particular areas. We can't model everything. So, for example, uh, we may be interested in modeling um, or understanding the emotional processes that are involved in um, engaging with solving maths problems, for example. And this is very important. We know that from educational research and from uh, uh, psychology research, psychological sciences, that uh, emotions are fundamental to our learning. And especially in, in, in domains such as mathematics, uh, we may encounter some of the barriers um, uh, such as maths anxiety. And so it is important to understand how these kinds of emotions arise, what are the triggers, and what we can do to help students uh, overcome these, these difficulties in order to allow them to, to learn. And so, uh, again, to create a model of maths anxiety, for example, in um, in a particular subdomain of, of, of maths requires a lot of observation. It, um, it, uh, it, it requires uh, it, not only observation in general, but also observation in ecologically, what we call ecologically valid circumstances. So, um, so it, it, it requires setting up quite controlled environments, which resemble as closely as possible the kind of environments in which we envisage helping um, the students. And then um, uh, such models require a very close analysis of, um, of the behaviors um, in order for us to be able to then encode these uh, observations in a comp computationally, in a formal way, in a computationally, um, in a way that it can be computationally processed. Okay. I know that you're also interested in the ethics of AI. Could you say a bit more about that? Well, it's a very um, big, very hot topic, <laughs> not least uh, because we have we have had a lot of examples of. Um, 
uh, ethical concerns arising as a consequence of, of using AI. And um, within the AI in education, um, these concerns have been until very recently um, not so much ignored, but um, they, they, they didn't receive as much attention. And, and part of the reason for that may be because just a lot of, a lot of researchers uh, who work within the AI in education assume that somehow, you know, we are absolved from the ethical concerns simply by virtue of working in education. So somehow, you know, we can delegate to, to the education as, as a kind of domain that is responsible for um, looking at, for, for um, questioning any possible uh, issues that may, that may arise. But obviously, we are not absolved as, as researchers in this, in this domain. And there are very specific concerns within, within AI in education, which require a close inspection. And these, these concerns are very much to do with how the education system works. So they, 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 the, the issues are very entangled with what we value in education and how the education system itself is structured. And um, the technology itself, be it AI or, you know, broader kind of ed tech, educational technology uh, industry, uh, feeds into that system. So in many ways, it reinforces a lot of the things that already exist there. So examples of, of um, ethical concerns uh, that cut across between different areas of, of, of AI and that are specific, uh, that are also relevant to AI in education includes the um, um, who is actually um, education for, who, where the emphasis is being placed. So for example, um, you know, the, the, the main emphasis is, is, is placed on um, the so-called neurotypical learners, with neuro, neurodiverse learners uh, receiving uh, different and maybe uh, not so um, um, well dif different kind of uh, uh, provision. But there are other other concerns which relate to what kind of domains we value, what what kind of outcomes we are looking for, and um, and th th these concerns kind of. Um, both drive the educational technology and AI industry that tries to cater for the system, but also the technology by, by virtue of catering for the system reinforces what we value and where we place the emphasis. So, um, so this is the kind of work that we are trying to do also at the, at the Knowledge Lab with um, colleagues such as Wayne Holmes. We have actually a book coming out in August that uh, that is that that is uh, concerned with AI in education and ethical concerns, um, and we also have a substantial chapter uh, book chapter that is coming out uh, later this year in the Handbook of AI in Education, where we put forward a um, a framework um, or a beginning of a framework for how we may actually question the way that we design the technologies and especially AI and how we, we can cater for for the different ethical concerns. Okay. Final question. 
how would you say your research specifically uh, contributes to the research agenda on, on AI? Well, I would hope that that it's central to the to the agenda on multiple different levels, not least because of the the, the ethics um, uh, concerns and, and questions in the work that we're doing. Uh, there is actually very little on AI in education. Education is uh, very often mentioned as as part of the AI agenda, but actually there is very little in the way of, of policy and understanding of what is um, what what AI can contribute to education and, and how education can inform also how we develop uh, AI. Um, and I think it's 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 central because it really does take a very human centric um, approach as opposed to a lot of the approaches that um, that are presented, which are very much coming from uh, a technocentric uh, origin whereby you know we create solutions um, AI solutions or technological solutions and then we look for problems that these solutions can uh, can solve and so it's I think the contribution is very much in or at least the contributions the contribution that I'm trying to make and and uh, colleagues with whom I collaborate are trying to make is to put on the agenda, uh, to emphasize really the need to look from the problem to the solution, from the human to the technology as a tool for enhancing rather than hindering our, you know, functioning, development, development, learning, communication and, 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 um, and well-being. Thank you, Kaska. That's, that's really exciting. We, yeah, we have time for a quick question from colleagues. John. I've just got a very quick question, which is that, I mean, given the complexity of what lies behind everything that you do, how do you communicate with the public about it? Because their experience of AI is things like the A-level, the exam fiasco a couple of years ago, where the machine learning was used to specifically discriminate against certain groups and award grades in that very, it was loaded into the system. And then politicians can say, oh, it's just a bad algorithm. I mean, I wonder how that makes you feel and how on earth, how, how do you explain the role of AI to the general public and what it what it actually could offer that's positive in, in that kind of negative environment? Um, <laughs> well, it's 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 a challenge uh, to explain yeah. AI. There is a lot of misconception uh, surrounding AI, sure. um, not least uh, the idea that actually the, the algorithm responsible for the fiasco was AI, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, but that's how it gets portrayed, you know, in the press. And... That is the problem. There yeah. is a lot of mythology that surrounds AI. There is a lot of hype that surrounds AI. And, you know, the, the hardest task that uh, myself and a lot of my colleagues um, here and across the world have is to explain what is AI? in the first place. And um, once you get over that hurdle, then you can engage in a, in a conversation uh, with different stakeholders. Uh, I mean, I work primarily with, with teachers um, and educational practitioners. And once, once you um, get over that hurdle and once you start asking questions and and looking at, at, at problems that they have and and asking um, 
them, you know, what is it that they need? What is it that they um, mm. they think how they could benefit from from um, from technology? Then you can start a really you know, a completely different conversation about, okay, so what what can we do? I mean, AI, the way that certainly that, that I conceive of, of, of what I do, AI in education, is uh, a form of civil engineering. Hmm. And this is this is one one misconception or this is some you know, it's a blind spot for a lot of people that it's that it's not this kind of separate thing that stands, you know, hmm. Uh, alongside the, the the humans, it's an artifact that we create, that we interact with, that we shape, but that shapes us in return. But it's also um, a tool. And and you know the, the the fact that we can shape it, that we are shaping it, mm. you know, gives us a lot of um, power to to make decisions and to make the right decisions. But we do need to start with the problems. Thanks. Thanks very much. Thank you. Uh, Kaska, you mentioned that you, you work with teachers. I wonder whether you think it's helpful for teachers to have some basic understanding of AI to, to begin with before they can understand how they can actually benefit from this technology. Mm -hmm. So how does this interaction or partnership with teachers actually work? Well, this is a very interesting question and um, it's an open question, you know, the, the extent to which um, non-experts, non-AI experts need to have uh, the understanding of, of AI in order to engage with it. And it's, it's something that I don't have an answer to. I mean, it's, there are different levels of expertise that you can have. So the question is, you know, what is the basic level that uh, people need to have in order to engage with with AI, and this is in fact uh, the subject of uh, PhD um, research by one of my um, uh, uh, students, who is actually um, a, a teacher uh, himself, and and he is investigating, you know, the, the the level of understanding that is required by by his colleagues, but more broadly by um, educational practitioners, in order to make informed decisions about not only what products to purchase, but also how to how to use them, how to sabotage them uh, for the benefit of, of their practice, how to um, uh, utilize them in the, to the to the best uh, effect. Thank you. So that's really fascinating, Casca. I'd say that isn't just about AI in, in terms of various kinds of resources and affordances that can help teachers to be agentive and to inform yes. their professional knowledge and understanding. Um, it's part of a, of a huge area of, of debate, I think, around the nature of teachers' knowledge and understanding and requisite knowledge that can help teachers to be professionally informed. Um, I think there are many, many connections be between the kinds of those, those really important concerns that, that you're addressing and you say are difficult and broader concerns for the for the teaching profession at the moment. Absolutely. And, you know, I often wonder, in fact, I, I believe very strongly that um, uh, the use of not just the use of technology, but the basic kind of uh, principles of how technology is being designed, including, you know, what informs these designs should be part of um, the professional training that teachers um, receive and the continuous uh, uh, professional development. 
Um, and it's something that, at least from, from my experience, teachers really want. And especially after the, 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 the pandemic and, 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 and this whole situation into which uh, they were thrown into of all of a sudden having to engage with, with technology. Uh, so I would say that now is actually a very good time to be thinking about how we um, may be able to incorporate this kind of development, this this kind of um, um, expertise development um, to give teachers the agency, the autonomy, the knowledge to m make decisions about whether they use the technology, what kinds of technologies they use and how they use them. Like you say, it comes down to what are the, what are the problems yes. that the technologies or anything else are, are trying to solve. I think that's something that probably ties in a lot with other work across the department, actually. Evangelos, what's the focus of your research? Uh, thank you, Jeff. Uh, well, I my personal research focus is is slightly idiosyncratic because of my strange background, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say a little bit about my own research, but I also try to be agent advocate and celebrator of, uh, of my valued colleagues' research, which is uh, much more mainstream in music education. So I'm a professor of music, comma, technology, Oxford, comma, and education. Uh, and I'm making that emphasis because uh, many misconceptions exist about what music technology is and about what music, comma, technology might be. Um, my background is, as I said, a bit strange because I started my life uh, with mathematics. Computers have always been part of my in my life. I'm a chartered fellow of the British Computer Society, a computer scientist, and for many years I've been working at industry, uh, crunching data for uh, other people, mainly in order to make them richer. Uh, so uh, at some point I decided that I had enough of that and I, and I tried to use my expertise in order to, to try to make a difference to people's lives. So music has always been a passion of mine. Uh, uh, at some point while studying mathematics, I uh, decided to do a very crazy thing that uh, worried my family, which was to come to the UK and do a master's in choral conducting and choral education because I just wanted a break from mathematics. Uh, and that also triggered a, a huge love for the voice and singing and the voice as, as an agent for communication as well. So not just within a musical context. So obviously when uh, <clears throat> you get older and you try to find a job, you try to combine all of your passions. And uh, uh, I tried uh, to, to do that by combining my passion for technology and education uh, and music and the voice and singing. Um, which was a bit of a challenge. So, so we did have to be creative and we did create my, my job title. Uh, so my research uh, in many cases is centered on helping other people with their research, uh, but I have been uh, fortunate to, to, to be very, uh, uh, to be able to be very selective the past uh, uh, decade uh, and participate in, in things that I find terribly exciting. So things that have to do with music, things that have to do with communication. Health is a very important center uh, in my work. I have developed more than 15 years ago a, a world uh, resource, uh, free resource, which is called Sounds of Intent, 
which is supporting children with profound and multiple learning difficulties and severe learning difficulties. Um, so we're talking about from minus six to plus 24 months of neurotypical development. Uh, so supporting uh, children and their carers and their parents uh, with, uh, with and through music uh, in making their lives better. I have worked in uh, making uh, and disseminating knowledge about music and about research uh, and about appropriate methodological approaches uh, uh, public and try to develop policy and change policy in some cases uh, as part of the government of the uh, uh, country's music manifesto teams uh, of inspire music and uh, as, as, as advocates of the importance of uh, understanding the appropriateness of certain methodologies in researching the effectiveness of music and its role in our everyday lives. Uh, singing, as I said, is, is a very, very big passion of mine. <clears throat> Last summer, uh, I was invited uh, uh, by the BBC at The One Show to just do a quick demonstration of some of my methodological uh, uh, tools uh, in uh, assessing chills and uh, what happens when uh, we hear someone sing uh, in different contexts and what we you commonly know as goosebumps. So I set up all of my equipment there uh, and, and, and try to demonstrate what is the actual phenomenon of goosebumps and how that works. So I've been extremely fortunate and uh, in echoing many of the uh, previous colleagues' um, works and foci, uh, I, have, I have worked extensively with functional uh, magnetic resonance imaging and understanding what uh, and how certain things can be mapped in the brain or how uh, uh, different behavioral uh, issues can be mapped or understood what the impact of music or the impact of sound can be uh, to, to everyday life, <clears throat> but also in contexts where music uh, no longer exists or used to exist and because of trauma uh, was, was taken away, for example, because of a stroke, in trying to understand neuroplasticity and how things are built up and become different in order for music to be regained. So I have been extremely fortunate, and I still am, to be uh, to be part of many interdisciplinary teams. I, I'm never a kind of lone ranger. I'm al I always try to be part of, of teams that do interesting things. Uh, and sometimes I provide technical solutions for those. Uh, sometimes I just look at the ways that things are being assessed in order to understand how things could be done differently or whether sh they should be done differently. So would you say that the focus of your research group overall is to explore the wider benefits of music? Uh, it is a very big part of, uh, of some of the colleagues in my research group uh, and, and a very big part of my, uh, of my focus. But obviously uh, our team is, is very much diverse and this is one of the things that you see in, in, in teams that have to do something with music. People will come with many different uh, uh, backgrounds, many different gestalt, many different uh, baggage. Uh, in in the, your previous discussion, uh, for example, 
uh, that we we were having with uh, with John, we, we we realized that John is is also a music enthusiast, and he 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 does he blogs about music and uh, about what he called obscure different musics. So everyone has a relationship with music, which is which is an amazing thing. Uh, but uh, other folk I do exist. We we have people that are working on music instrument uh, uh, learning across the lifespan from very early childhood. Uh, we have a huge passion uh, for voice and singing. Myself and uh, Professor Graham Welsh uh, are the, the ones that primarily research voice and singing. Um, the use of technology and media uh, in, in pedagogy, uh, different methodologies, as I said, effective mentoring of non-specialists, generalists in music. That is a very big part of what we do, for example, for my work in special needs as well, because one of the very big challenges is for people that want to help understand how powerful music can be, but feel that they're not equipped to actually uh, become engaged. So we try to make things accessible for them and try to also explain that you don't need to be a specialist, at least the way that one might perceive that they need to be a specialist in order to, to be supportive. Uh, we work on supporting children and young people uh, with complex and multiple needs, as I said, uh, but also in, 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 in things that might kind of raise an eyebrow. For example, uh, uh, work that I've done in preserving uh, the musics of Afghanistan and with the current development, with the uh, return of the Taliban, for example, uh, one of the things that my, people might have not realized is that the Taliban had completely banned music. Uh, so about 10 years ago, I developed in collaboration with Professor John Bailey at Goldsmiths, a unique resource which, uh, which um, teaches people how to uh, play in, uh, the rubab, which is uh, the, the most kind of uh, important musical instrument of Afghanistan. And also uh, try to explain how uh, uh, scales and how uh, different playing techniques work. Uh, and uh, since the launch, it's one of the most rewarding things for me to see that I, I, on a daily basis, I receive messages from inside Afghanistan from people being thankful for learning about their own music from from people outside Afghanistan because they're not allowed to do that within their own country. Uh, we, we have people that are working in uh, uh, formal and other than formal contexts and trying to understand how bridges can be, uh, can be built between those or, or demolished, <laughs> which is another very important discussion. Uh, we have uh, uh, colleagues that focus on the sociological aspects of, of music and learning, music and uh, me meaning, gender, society, Obviously, uh, music is very much kind of uh, uh, socially located, and there is a lot of research happening with that, uh, under that umbrella. So it's a very diverse world, and it's uh, it's something very exciting and very uh, important to be part of. And I'm very glad to be part of this. Just going back to to your own research, one of the uh, projects that I thought was really powerful, it seemed to me, was your work beatboxing project for uh, patients that have had oh, yes. a, a laryngectomy. Could you say a bit more about that and also how it came about and how you worked with different stakeholders on that project? <clears throat> Thank you, yes, that's uh, that's uh, 
a very important and project and very dear to my heart. Uh, the news is that actually the charity with uh, uh, whom I've been uh, working with, uh, Chartered Cancer, actually uh, recently received the Queen's Award for Excellence in, in Public Service, which is the highest recognition that a, 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 a charitable uh, body can uh, can receive. Uh, but this this project is also a celebration of the importance of forging synergies and forging relationships with with students and the, the things that can happen with people that you have taught. Uh, because this whole thing started with uh, just a, a sparky medical doctor coming to me wanting to and, and asking about whether he could uh, uh, participate in the uh, course that I'm leading, which is called Core Conducting Leadership and Communication. Uh, and he wanted to do this as, as an external uh, student. Um, so I, I, I agreed and I realized that he had a plan. He was a man with a plan. So he, he wanted to, to learn more, not just about the heuristics of choral conducting and about uh, being a musical director, because he was already an experienced singer, but also about current research and, and, and current evidence about leading a choral group uh, and, and being the leader of a choir. And his cunning plan, of course, was to form the world's first and still only choral uh, group of people without voices, which is a very powerful thing because it also celebrates how important music is, even if you don't, and singing, even if you don't have a voice to sing with. Uh, so he found he founded the charity Shouted Cancer, uh, and I have been a, a kind of a founding member and uh, supporting the charity since uh, at the beginning of our relationship. And we have been trying to identify new and different ways to support the laryngeal group, the cancer patients. Uh, and one of those was uh, by exploring, uh, bringing beatboxing into a, laryng a group of laryngectomies. Uh, so uh, I was one of the first uh, uh, IOE academics to, to actually get a, receive a beacon bursary from UCL Culture. Uh, and our aim was to uh, to bring people together, bring them together with a uh, beatboxing expert, uh, try to create masterclasses and try to uh, help them rehabilitate their voices using beatboxing as the excuse, as the kind of uh, uh, icebreaker. And at the end, we gave a public uh, engagement performance at the Olympic Village, uh, which was absolutely fantastic, absolutely great. Uh, uh, but it also led to uh, to us understanding many things about voice rehabilitation and about how beatboxing as an art form can be catalytic to this. Uh, uh, which uh, And we, we did actually publish a, a methods paper on Frontiers uh, in order to enable other people to, to use uh, our experience and what we got out of it uh, if they wanted to support uh, laryngectomy or voice rehabilitation groups. Uh, so the news... Uh, because I'm taking too long with my answers, because I'm very passionate about the things that we do. Uh, uh, and everyone in here and everyone that listens to this uh, broadcast uh, is cordially invited to a very big uh, performance that we're going to be given in uh, October this year, 2022, at the Bloomsbury Theatre, which is going to be an even greater event, and it's going to involve uh, jazz and uh, outspoken, which, which we call outspoken jazz. So it will be spoken word, theatre, jazz, 
in a huge performance with our laryngectomy patients. So thank you for asking about that. I'm very happy to share that. Thank you. Just looking around to see if there are any questions from colleagues. John. I'm blown away by the, all of that, basically, Evangelos. Thank you for sharing all of that. I knew some of it, of course. Um, what I wanted to ask you about, because it's something that perplexes me uh, some of the time, is when people blithely talk about interdisciplinarity, um, is is interdisciplinarity is interdisciplinarity easy? It's not easy to say. Is it easy to do? And how would you communicate that to a wider audience? Uh, well, it depends on whether you uh, you subscribe to the actual tyranny of the label, or whether you care about the. Uh, yeah. what it means and its implications and unfortunately it's it's a very big part of the discussion so uh, so many people focus on interdisciplinarity not at the IOE we're all perfect uh, outside the IOE and they they just only care about something being interdisciplinary well in the things that we do uh, I mean especially in in music and media and the arts and everything we are interdisciplinary by design. You cannot be in vacuum. You cannot do things in silos. It doesn't work. Uh, and this is one of the uh, very important things that we try to instill in, in our kind of teacher uh, uh, trainees as well, uh, especially because uh, people that have formal musical training uh, can come with great misconceptions and with uh, kind of narcissistic tendencies about... Uh, and not narcissism as a celebration of their of their own greatness, but as a kind of lack of understanding and respect of other people's baggage and and uh, uh, and pathways and trajectories. So this is a huge part of of an, an effective music education to actually try to introduce to others that is it, that the whole discussion is by default and by design interdisciplinary. Mm whether it has to do with genres, whether it has to do with different instruments, different approaches, different uh, journeys that you followed in order to become a musician. I was not formally trained, and I started my formal training when I was 22. Other people would say that this is already too late and you need to be four, like my daughter was when she started. So interdisciplinarity is, is an extremely important part of this, but not only in doing it, but also in assessing what is done and how it's done, mm. which is uh, my big passion, is to try to understand how things work. Thanks. Moving on to uh, John. <laughs> Hi. John, can you tell us about your research? Well, thanks, Jeff. Um, I'd, I've got a history with the IOE, since this, I may as well mention the IOE history since we're here for that. And uh, my history to the, with the IOE goes back a number of years. I started uh, my professional life here as a trainee in primary education and I never would have imagined that I'd be sitting in this room here a couple of well more than a couple of decades later you know as a professor of media and education and I don't think a lot of what I do at the moment existed then so in trying to understand how I've ended up doing this whatever it is I've, I've tried to think about it in terms of how we make meaning as being the foundation of it, because when you start to, to teach and to work with small children, as, as everybody in the room will appreciate, you are really talking about the foundations of com communication and communicative learning. So I recognise in everything that's been said so far, um, some aspects of, of my work. 
So it's really located in media in education and the in is very important to me because it's not media education and it's not media studies, it's media in education. So it's quite a diverse portfolio of different things I've done. And if there is anything that unites it all, it's an interest in what learners or what people bring to the meaning making process and how that changes in the era of digital media and why on earth our education system lags so far behind the actual practices in which people engage in everyday life, because it definitely does. Which is not to say that reading and print writing are unimportant, but to say that we need to think about a broader conception of learning in 2022, and some of our curriculum is not really fit for purpose anymore. So part of the, one of the ways of researching that is to go into people's lives and to try to find out what people are doing in the, in the things that they make and the, and the meanings that they share. And some of that involves thinking about it in a sociocultural frame, and some of it involves thinking about it in a multimodal frame, actually the technical aspects of how meaning is made. So I recognise that in, in some of the things that you've been saying, Jeff. So to bring it all together, I think the, the most recent research projects I've been involved in, I've just been um, directing an ESRC project called the Play Observatory, which is about children's play during the pandemic. And we were really researching remotely. So we had to use a lot of technology and our communication was mediated th throughout the project. But it was interdisciplinary in nature. And what it required was finding people who were prepared to share quite intimate and personal stuff about what they had been playing, children had been playing in the home, and how the virus, in particular the phases of lockdown, had impacted on children's um, loss of amenity, their loss of friends, uh, their inability to be able to go to school, how all of that impacted on their, on their lives. And we required people to, if they wanted to take part, to uh, you know, really detailed ethics applications, I'm sure you can imagine, and to, to commit to submitting images and video and text about their experiences. So the project I asked Evangelos about interdisciplinarity because in doing this project, we were working in a very interdisciplinary way with people from the School of Education at Sheffield University and with CASA, the Centre for Advanced Spatial Analysis. So we had human interface design in there, we had folklore, we had archives and we had media in one kind of soup <laughs> of, of, uh, of human experience. Uh, and we opened with a, a survey and a portal that was opened on the website that we hosted where people could make submissions and we followed that with some interviews and we've been beginning to conduct analysis drawing on the strengths of the team. I mentioned Sheffield but also Kate Cowan involved as well on multimodal techniques of analysis. So what the, the reason for doing it was that we were interested, given that the different kinds of factors that I've already mentioned drive my interest, but everybody in the team is interested in answering questions like, how have children been playing during the pandemic online and offline, um, from the initial outbreak of the virus throughout lockdown and during social distancing, how has that impacted? Like when I've gone back to school, how has it been different at school? in those months. How does the virus itself feature as an aspect of children's play? Because I'm very interested in how children and people make use of cultural resources in their play and in what they make and share. And what insight does that, when it goes into their play, what insight does that give into their experience of the pandemic itself? What continuities and discontinuities does 
this form of play have with play of the past? Because this project follows on from work that Andrew Byrne and Jackie Marsh directed, I was part of, on the OP archive of children's play. So we're interested in that archival connection and disconnection with the past. And how finally can we put it together in an interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary way with cultural studies, folklore studies, the history of childhood, media literacy, multimodality and education to help us better understand the role and value of play and well-being. Because the discourse is has been mainly around learning loss. So we want to speak back to power and say, learning loss is not the only aspect of children's experience. We need to focus on what they have been doing in terms of their resilience and well-being in their play during these quite stressful and, and difficult times. So that's that's been the most recent uh, um, project and now I'm heavily into the dissemination of it. <laughs> So can you give us a glimpse of the findings? Well, it's a, a glimpse. A glimpse would be that, that children have been playing. So they've been doing all of the things that they were doing before and they adapt, adapted to the lockdown um, very rapidly. Interesting forms of play emerged that were kind of accentuated. Children built lots of dens in, in the evidence that we've seen to have a sort of space that they can control. So lots of turning a, you know, a table, a chair over the other way and crawling under it and making a, a space uh, a space to play. They've adapted their toys. You can see on our site and in our exhibition, which I can talk more about, uh, they've put masks over their toys, faces and things like that. So they're engaged in imaginative play that helped them to make sense of it. We celebrated a lot of, or are celebrating a lot of children's resilience and how they kept on with storytelling, imaginative play, innovating, how they worked with screens, how they played remotely with each other in Roblox and Minecraft, how they communicated with relatives through tablets, played hide and seek with grandparents and then hid an iPad with the grandparent on it in the house and all that kind of, you know, really adapting their play. But we've also been sensitive in interviews to children who did not have a good time. So it's important to accept all the evidence. We, you know, it, it's lovely to be able to report on the things that went well, but we also want to give accounts of where, where children really did feel that they were um, on their own with things. Uh, they did not enjoy being disconnected from school and they did not enjoy the return to school, having got used to a different way of being. So we've, we've got evidence that there are some children who did not really have a great time in, in lockdown, but throughout, they were self-directed and what's really interesting of course is they go back into a curriculum in our country which is quite tightly controlled certainly in terms of its literacy experiences so we're interested in writing about what children were able to do in terms of creative production their creative writing their creative photography and video and music creation that they cannot do in the at the moment easily some schools do it but not all easily in in the present curriculum and um, so we're interested in speaking to policymakers about how that sh could shift as well on the basis of what we've seen in lockdown. We talked about interdisciplinarity mm. several times and, and you raised it yourself and, and yeah. you just told us that on this project you also worked with a number of different people that bring different perspectives yeah. to to your data yeah. that you're trying to make sense of. Where do the, the, the children fit in? How do you work with children in research? Well, I think that there's an, an, 
a number of lessons that we learned on playing the archive that Kate and I, Kate Cowan and I spent a long time in, in the playground observing. So we did the traditional things of, of interviewing and, and observing and making notes, but we also gave uh, license to children to become researchers of their own experience. It's harder to do in, in the play observatory to an extent, but from playing the archive, um, we gave out voice recorders at lunchtime, for example, and children ran around and collected massive m m hours and hours of voice notes interviewing each other about what they were doing. They became like kind of YouTube newsreader broadcaster type type people and also uh, making their own videos. And we recruited in the schools that we worked in at the time, the uh, a research team from year five in each school. There were 10 or 12 people that we trained up as researchers of children's own experiences and their own lives. So that's that's one aspect of doing it. But I think it's it's giving them space to talk and to be. And having said there were difficulties with remote research, what we did find was really interesting was that the, the screen flattens hierarchies quite quickly. So when we were doing the interviews, uh, the interviewers in the same occupy the same screen space as the as the children being interviewed. And they uh, and when they talk, you don't talk over them because in this world of Zoom and Teams, you get used to contributions being delivered in a very kind of this person speaks, then that person speaks. So there's a little bit of flattening of the hierarchy there. Uh, and in some instances, we've got examples of where children drove the conversation by actually taking control of the laptop. There was a child who, um, when the mother was speaking, gradually moved the laptop over to her face and then started talking directly into it. Kate's got a great example of that. So, yeah, I think it's about trying to give children their own voice in the research as much as possible. But then when you write it up, don't overstate that. It is still your research. They're co-producers of the research with you. They're not actually, in this project, co-researchers as such, but they're co-producers of the research with you. I think it's getting that balance right. How would you say your research might inform policy and practice? Well, as I alluded to, I think that we can use it to speak back to power a little bit. I mean, I've, I'm part of a, a, a group of a primary literacy research collaborative in my other role as um, an executive member of the Media Education Association and on the research committee of the United Kingdom Literacy Association. There's a group of five or six of us have been corresponding with the Secretary of State for Education on this exact fact. Uh, and on the publications as they emerge, we're kind of gathering the research together to provide a research base for a, a different way of thinking about um, primary education. It's kind of a pincer movement. If you think about the work that Dom, Dominic Wise and Alice Bradbury have done on, on reading, for example, we're, we're coming into it from a different angle from play, agency, creativity, uh, media and folklore, that kind of area but we think that these are things that we all we can do is is say what we're finding um and then hope that the policymakers listen so i'm interested john in what how do you envisage uh curriculum changing how could it change and how should it change in order to address the uh, the, the the findings and the, the the concerns that uh you have I think my my concern is with the the narrowing of of the curriculum into atomized skills and atomized pieces of knowledge, whereas in the world we join these things together to perform particular tasks of communication and and to build things together. So collaboration is way down on the list of 
or it's about individual attainment at the moment. So I would change it in, I'd move it towards collaborative projects. I would uh, connect the subjects at primary level because I think they've started to ape the kind of the necessary division into subjects that happens later. I think some primary schools have gone down that route of disconnecting and atomizing knowledge into geography, history, you know. And I, I think there's a value in putting things together because children experience the, the world. They will talk about um, a historical event, but then they'll also talk about a story they've just read. They'll talk about a piece of music they're listening to. They need to see the connections between things. So I think media in particular has a role. It, it makes you join things up. If you think about, I've been engaged in projects, for example, that connect poetry with animation at uh, with six-year-olds where they see how an animation is put together. And because that's a time delimited thing, they also understand poetry as, as rhythm and meter as well, and, and is about image. And children see that holistically. So rather than closing the door on media and screens, I think they should be welcomed into the school and sit alongside everything. So I'm not saying replace the curriculum, I'm saying enhance it. And I think that a proper kind of a media education program could really enhance the curriculum. John, I think that's really interesting. I think, I mean, would you say that there are big implications from what you've just said for teachers as curriculum makers, along with children in classrooms as curriculum makers? Definitely, definitely. And I'd say that um, that reminds me of a project that I did with Theo Breyer, where we looked at um, iPads in uh, filmmaking in classrooms. And we worked in a primary school and in a, in a secondary school. She did more of the secondary school work than I did. And yeah, it, it, it definitely is a part of it. And it kind of drives that response to external culture as well, I think. So it's not about bringing the external culture into the classroom per se, which is, you know, David Buckingham always has that thing about you can't make something cool by bringing it into, can't make school cool by bringing in external culture in that way. But some of the skills and dispositions that children employ and young people employ in the things that they do and make and share outside could form a useful backdrop to activities uh, and enhancements to the curriculum within within school. Um, really exciting research. I, I found your project on, on play during the pandemic particularly exciting and interesting. Just having two children at home during the pandemic made it very personal to me. So I was wondering um, how you think or whether you, you, you found out anything about the parents' role in facilitating play or creating spaces for, for play for children? Oh, I think I think we definitely did. Um, there are a number of examples, uh, even during the interview sessions, we had an interview session, Michelle Cannon and I were conducting an interview on screen with a family where the parent was following the four and the two-year-old through their den and in and out to, to the, and you got a glimpse in their house of how the normal kind of routines of where things should be the right way up and tidy had been kind of like abandoned to the, to this world that the children had kind of created because that's what was happening. And it, and it made sense to the children and it made sense to the adult to have a kind of relaxation of the normal kind of ways of being because the pandemic was not the kind of the normal way of being at that stage it was very new and so um yeah parents parents who listened parents who gave space parents who um there was a, lots of we've got lots of stories of parents going at getting out and going for walks with children that they hadn't done before and interestingly as well as parents siblings so whereas previously you know the brothers and sisters who may not have 
got on very well or two or three year age gap and I'm too cool to play with you. And they could only play with a sibling for a while. So discovered new kinds of relationships. We've got lots of stories of that kind of evidence as well. So parents were crucial. And we, we, we really need to find ways of communicating that back. I mean, Kate's been doing uh, nursery world type interviews and early insights stuff, but we need to disseminate to parents groups as well, definitely. Thank you. Caroline, could you tell us about your research? Um, I think it's really interesting actually speaking at the end of our conversation, how many of the kinds of themes that have gone around the table come back to the area that I work in, uh, which is the learning of new teachers uh, with a particular interest in those who've already qualified and are moving into those first two to three years of their teaching careers. Um, with a specific focus on how they learn, uh, what the factors are within schools that influence their learning and what the kinds of consequences are. And of course, we know that in, in this country and in many others uh, in the UK and internationally, there's a serious concern around the attrition of new teachers. Um, we invest huge amount of resource into training teachers, of course. And we, we think there's a, a lot of work to be done in understanding better what it is that enables them to stay in teaching once they've qualified. Um, particularly around what makes it uh, a satisfying career. Um, it is a postgraduate profession and we're interested in the intellectual dimensions and the dimensions that let teachers feel they're making a contribution towards socially just goals, um, making a worthwhile difference. And we know that sometimes when people set out to become teachers, they want to make a difference. They're, they're not always completely aware of what that difference might actually be in reality. Um, but nonetheless, we think there's a, a considerable job of work to do still to help teachers achieve goals that are worthwhile, worthwhile enough that help them to stay in the profession. So um, a lot of the research that I've focused on in recent years has been around that, around the experiences of new teachers. Um, working in the English system, the Welsh system, and actually in New Zealand, um, which is interesting to compare with because of the focus in New Zealand on um, principles derived from research and with universities uh, on which it's considered valid to, to base a learning programme for new teachers for two years. Uh, and because in New Zealand they, they've had a, a two-year induction period um, for long, um, a long period of time for new teachers, which is considered a very new thing in England, but which in fact has been going on on the other side of the world for quite a long time. And we could do well to learn more perhaps from other systems. Um, so I would say that a particular focus of this, if you like, you could sum up by saying that we're interested in looking at um, the idea that it takes a school to grow a teacher a little bit like drawing on that analogy of it takes a village to grow a child, but it takes a school to grow a teacher. And so my research has looked at what it is within schools, what, what are those school level factors that impact on the experiences of teachers, on their understanding of their own professionalism, on the kinds of knowledge that they develop, the skills they develop, 
um, and on the expectations of, of what it would mean to stay in teaching, to make it a career-long lifestyle choice that can be sustained over time. Um, so primarily looking at school level factors uh, in terms of interrelationships with other people, both learners and, and colleagues, leadership, the impact of school cultures, but also understanding from ecological analyses really about how those factors within schools are also um, deeply affected by the policy environment nationally and, and locally, the communities which schools serve, and also the needs to take into consideration teachers' own histories that they bring with them into the profession, the autobiographical dimensions of their professional learning, and how their own histories and experiences affect their understandings and the decisions they make and the sense they make of classrooms and the curriculum and their, the expectations on the actions they'll take as, as teachers. Um, and understanding the significance of that and, and how that um, contributes to how they make decisions in the moment and interact within all the, the statutory requirements and the mandatory things they have to do and how that relates then to their projected futures. So it's, uh, it's really quite complicated. Uh, so it's looking at schools as, as sites of professional formation but understanding that those schools are intricately interconnected uh, with so many networks of, of relationships with resources, people, policies uh, that impact on, on the possibilities for those new teachers. So how do you paint that picture of, of that village or of, of that site of, of professional formation? What sorts of methods do you use to better understand how teachers make sense of all those things that you just mentioned. And so it's it draws on a, a range of methods and we've, we've talked about mixed methods studies earlier around the table and why so many of us in CCM find that approach very appealing um, and I think this is probably a good example of that. So that's where it's been great to work with colleagues in New Zealand um, who were developing uh, a quantitative um, approach developing a scale of induction and mentoring um, that was trialled with three waves of new teachers in New Zealand between four to six years ago. Uh, we've worked closely with them to look at how we can adapt that scale um, in Wales, where we've been able to think, what are the constituent elements um, around principles derived from literature and trialled over time? Uh, that mean we can we can arrive at a single factor analysis of, of induction and mentoring within schools and that can enable us to measure um, on this scale what those environments uh, are constituted of, how effective they are as places for the learning of new teachers. And what's been really interesting working in that way has been to find the, the similarities across sites in New Zealand and Wales um, around the, the differences between different stakeholders and in terms of how they score on this scale of induction and mentoring. And so, for example, it probably wouldn't surprise anybody um, to hear that we found that school leaders and head teachers 
have a, a marked difference in their perceptions of their schools as effective learning environments for new teachers compared with the new teachers themselves, that there's actually some considerable gulf between how new teachers uh, score according to a whole uh, series of, uh, of, of ratings. Um, but also uh, what was less, uh, less predictable perhaps was the ways that the majority of staff, of those who, who are not involved with new teachers particularly, not, not mentors for example, and people who are not school leaders, but all the rest of the staff, how differently they score um, also from head teachers in terms of their perceptions of the schools as learning environments for new teachers. And in fact, they scored even lower than new teachers, um, which, which indicated, uh, along with interviews in, in some sites, um, it indicated a real fragmentation within schools between different parts of the, of the school workforce. Um, mm very siloed conditions. And we often think, you know, where we think of schools as places with silos, we might think of that along departmental lines, for example, in a secondary school. Um, but what we were finding was that was really around the kinds of positions that people hold, the relations they have, um, around what new teachers have got to do with them, why they should be remotely interested in new teachers, and why the decisions that are made in, in terms of how you run the geography department or the way you develop behaviour policy, what that might have to do with new teachers. Um, it was really interesting to look at these, this very strange and fragmented kind of conditions within schools um, and think, well, why does this matter for new teachers? Why should this impact on them? What do we need to understand more? Um, and what's been interesting there is looking at qualitative analyses, um, which was undertaken in New Zealand by, by colleagues out there, sort of substantially over three waves. But what we're trying to do now in, in work we're just developing um, is to work with critical incident analysis, which is something that's well established um, in professional education, you know, in, in many professions. Um, but looking at it specifically with new teachers is something where there's there's less work. And we're also trying to develop ways where we can do that um, online, which is quite a shift because normally when we think about ways of developing critical incident analysis, we think of working in quite an intimate way around a table in a room, an extended conversation, uh, with lots of opportunities for all those social cues that, that help people to talk about their experience and to understand and, and to analyse and reflect on it. Um, so we're looking at ways of doing that, that we can move online so that we can undertake a much wider scale qualitative data collection, which is what we think is, is warranted. We need to, we need to listen to these new teachers. We, under, we, we need to understand them situated within their schools and within the ecologies um, and, and how they are part of those, how they help to make those ecologies uh, and how they're influenced by them. But we also need to understand their, their specific voices um, and to be part of that kind of sense-making process with them. Um, it's kind of really important to listen to new teachers because we are losing so many of them. So what would you say then to people that come to you asking, Caroline, what works? 
what do we need to do in order to keep our teachers to attract the right number of new teachers that we need to keep the education system going what works well i think what what works is a recognition that new teachers yes need um, a framework of entitlements and opportunities but we need to rethink what we mean by such a, a framework i think at the moment it's, it's rather similar to what john was saying about a, a curriculum model in, in primary schools that doesn't allow the flexibility necessarily that harnesses the opportunities that are that are there for, for children to learn um, we have a similar kind of situation, I would say, in teacher education, in that at the moment uh, there's an increasing emphasis on a, on a teacher education curriculum that's composed of, of content, of sequ sequential content to be covered, of, of stuff that teachers need to learn. And if they can learn it, then they can become better teachers and more satisfied and feel a greater sense of efficacy and, and thus stay in the profession. We think it's actually um, much more complicated than that. Um, and if we could think about a curriculum in terms of experiences, entitlements and opportunities for new teachers to learn through working collaboratively, through inquiry, through space for sense making, uh, through acknowledging the histories they bring and the knowledges that they bring as learners in the world, specifically paying attention to subject and what constitutes subjects, interest and expertise and how that needs space to grow and be nurtured for new teachers. And if we could understand that that means that support um, in the form of mentoring is not so much about leading a, a teacher along a preordained path towards a fixed idea of what an expert is, but rather about helping them to develop a whole, a whole set of professional skills and, and, and knowledges which may be quite unique to their context, their subject, the communities they serve. That would go a long way. Um, it's much more difficult to, to regulate aspects of that. Um, but increased regulation hasn't actually enabled more teachers to stay in the profession. It, it needs a long, a long hard look. Um, subject needs a lot more attention and I think within individual schools it can be quite challenging to support new teachers to develop all their potentials um, within a subject domain. Working with wider networks, working with pools of experts, working with people who come along from the outside and say here are some other ways we could try something, why don't we try it together, like some of the projects that we've heard you know, around the table, um, those kinds of opportunities and the risk taking that goes with that and the trust in teachers to build knowledge with a whole network of people who, who bring different and quite challenging and disruptive ideas to schools. That's part of the lifeblood, I think, of teaching as an intellectual practice, um, which is what I think they're crying out for. So you think of teachers as agentive professionals? I think that teachers themselves, if they're agentive, find the job incredibly satisfying, yes. Um, I think it's a, 
it's an area where uh, a lot of policy and, and research and teacher development programs should focus a, a lot of attention at the moment. Yeah, I think we look at a lot of other things as, as, as proxies um, for teacher competence and teacher excellence. I think we need to look hard at what it is that makes the job really worthwhile for teachers. That sounds quite basic, but it's actually, it calls for some quite complicated thinking. Um, question, because um, I've got both of my children are teachers. One is a primary school teacher and one is a secondary school teacher, and they're both at that sort of second, third year of, of their jobs. I wondered a couple of questions. At what point do you think a new teacher stops being a new teacher? Or is it very, very individualised? You couldn't put a figure on it, like numbers of years. But then the other thing is, um, at what point can they mentor somebody? Because I'm always, I'm always impressed by people that take on mentoring quite mm. early because their experiences are so fresh as opposed to always being a highly experienced teacher. I know they've got a role to play as well, but I wonder what you thought about peer, almost peer mentoring like within a couple of years. I think, let's talk about the, the second one first. I think that's really interesting. I think so much of that depends on what we mean by being a mentor. Right. And again, that's that's something that I think is, is very debated at the moment. Mm. Um, and there is, uh, there's a strong emphasis on on mentoring as as being a novice expert relationship um, in which a, a body of knowledge fairly uncontestable resides in an experienced teacher, however many years it takes to, to, to develop that, which we could then pass on in fairly unproblematic ways through, through modelling and showing and, and giving feedback to others. And I think um, there are other concepts of mentoring, aren't there? Um, around sort of educative ideas around mentoring mm. by which um, two people or more in dialogue investigate aspects of practice in a classroom mm. and by which the person who's been teaching longer shares the challenges they have experienced in being able to reach certain learners um, or enabling learning in certain contexts and this is something which is shared with a, with a new teacher with a person with less experience mm. and it becomes a a focus of joint inquiry and of course that's not an equal uh, contribution of the same kinds of knowledge that's brought to that but the new teacher brings their own world of experience through subject through being a learner um, through prior engagement with young people they're far from an empty vessel mm. and uh, I think reconfiguring what we mean by mentoring relationships could help enormously mm. Um, if we thought about how policy and resource which is channeled into it as a kind of as a, as a joint project, a joint endeavour between two teachers, it sets up a way of, of professional working um, that I think could be hugely advantageous. Um, but that does mean a reconfiguration of the idea of, of what it is to be the expert mm, sure. and, and who knows what. Um, and I think that, that that connects with what you were saying about uh, at what stage do people stop being new teachers? Well, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think in terms of policy and, and resource, I guess we have to have various kinds of thresholds yeah. where we say, you know, we can now say that the yeah, person you're not, you're is being regarded. Anymore. We do need to be able to say those things. Um, but in, in, in terms of hard and fast frameworks, I think that's really problematic because we've, we've all worked in our different projects, I'm sure, with stunning new teachers entering mm. the workplace in their first year and just immensely thankful that they're working with children and young people and, and making a superb impact from the start. Um, and I, I think that, you know, positioning them as novice in certain respects, you know, isn't helpful. It's not, it's not the dialogue that you want mm. to have with them. 
Um, and that's not to underestimate, you know, the, the huge amount of learning that goes on throughout a teacher's um, career. So, yeah, not a straightforward answer, no, I'm afraid, John. No, I didn't think of it. <laughs> <laughs> Tashka, final question. You know, I, lo- I love the idea and and uh, fully, you know, embrace the idea of, of teachers um, and their expertise development in a kind of holistic way way in the environment through the through the interaction with the environment by um you know taking account of their of their histories as well and and their their kind of um personal subjective experiences as well um but i also see and we, we i see that also in the in the, the the context of ai in education and where technology is being taken mm-hmm. and how it is being uh, exploited uh, within within education, um, th- there's an issue. There's a there's a, um, a a kind of a trap in a way. Uh, we are trapped in a in a system which uh, values um, you know exam results as as a as an outcome, and it's it's a it's a very entrenched kind of system in the in the, in the sense whereby teachers. And all of the tools that we recruit in within the system serve that one particular direction, you know, to learn uh, particular subject matters in silos and to produce measurable outcomes. And so the vision that you outline, um, which again I, I fully embrace, and 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 this is something that that you know uh, I also spent quite a lot of time. Um, you know, trying to, mm-hmm. to communicate to, vi- uh, to diverse stakeholders that, you know, technology as a tool can actually allow us to think outside of the box. It, it can allow us to uh, make meaning, as John was um, uh, saying as well, in the context of, of media and in education, so AI in education. <laughs> um, how, how can we you know, change the the status quo. How can we get out of this uh, state of entrenchment? How can what what can we do as as experts in our specific areas to actually change the situation? Yeah, uh, and I mean that's so important uh, and and absolutely right. And I think we know that we've tried uh, through so many kinds of networks and poly inf- um, policy influences and so on that, that we all engage with. We know the work that we do to try to make that difference. And we, we know that sometimes that can be very rich, but sometimes there are certainly frustrations. And I, and I think there's, there's no particular sort of uh, straightforward kind of answer to that, is there? But we do know that policy has to respond to the circumstances of the moment. And the circumstances of the mo- at the moment are teachers are continuing to leave in ways that are massively draining on our, our resource, on our system, um, on the goals we want for um, closing the gap in terms of social inequities in our society. And we know that that is growing rather than closing. Um, we know that we've, we've, we've hit that kind, um, that kind of threshold of, of, the, of the great sort of meteoric rise in examination results that, that come a lot, comes along with certain kinds of, of policy that, that you know that addresses deficit um, by certain kinds of interventions and 
um, and then you reach a plateau. And then what? And I think, you know, we, we can see when we look across the various aspects of, of, our, of our schools and our education system, we, we've plateaued in various kinds of ways. Um, for growth, things have to change. And I guess that's not going to be through any kind of single strategy policy making. I mean, it needs to look at curriculum, the education of teachers, our assessment system, um, it, the relationships between schools and communities. Um, single strategies don't work desperately well, even when huge amounts of money are thrown at them, because it is an ecology. Um, it does mean um, policy making that takes account of so many factors before one thing just wipes another out. Um, we, can, we can see this. We know this. We talk about these things. I guess that's why, I mean, one of the things that I think holds out possibly more hope, who knows, um, is working with stakeholders that uh, where their longevity, you know, it, it outlasts um, particular sort of changes in, in policy making and, and policy makers. So some of the national bodies that are around for longer um, are very interesting to work with. That brings us to the end of the, this conversation. We've heard about some really exciting projects at the intersection of culture, society and education and the impact that this work is having, whether by advancing our understanding of contemporary social life, cultural forms of expression and learning, offering critical analysis of big challenges in society and among specific groups, such as teachers and students or health professionals and patients, or by helping design and evaluate solutions and making improvements to address those challenges. Sadly, that's all we have time for. Thank you for the speakers and to you for listening. If you'd like more information on the research we've been discussing, you can find that in the links we've published alongside this recording. Thank you. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast. 